We are pleased to welcome back to our program Mrs. Carmel Richardson, contributing editor at The American Conservative. In response to recent setbacks to the pro-life cause, Carmel explains that it's not the pro-life argument that's losing, it's that pro-life leaders need to get back to the basics. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. You know, look, can we... I was going to say, if you get this one right, I'll give you a bottle of bourbon. Well, exactly. Can, can we just all admit, <laughs> I think our audience has figured out by now that I'm really not good at this. In fact, I recognized last week when I could not get walking in Memphis. I mean, Gary sucks at this game. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you got Creed right when we did Creed. Well, yeah, like that's the one. That's the one I got right. And I think you got Newsboys right that I year. I did. I did. I got a few. So, this is an artist by the name of Nina Simone. One of my favorite. It's in my dinner time um, background music. And uh, the reason I selected it has to do with... I was looking for songs that had references to babies. Because we're going to talk about the abortion debate. So, not that this song has anything to do with that felt abortion. very. Uh, that felt very, um, you've got mail. Yeah. I, 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 I would feel. I, I could I could go with that. <laughs> well, Gary, today I'm uh, I'm pleased to welcome back. We are pleased to welcome back to our program Mrs. Carmel Richardson, contributing editor at the American Conservative, also a Hillsdale grad with a BA in political philosophy and a minor in journalism. And uh, Carmel is a Tennessean, and she might, Gary, just have the best looking father in the world. Clearly, <laughs> a man that I see Clearly. in the mirror every day. <laughs> Carmel, welcome back awesome. to the Freedom Matters podcast. Thank you for having me. It's Did always you, a pleasure. Are you going to comment on the uh, best looking man in the world? <laughs> no, I, I didn't say best looking man. Oh, that would be your husband, too, uh, and it should be your husband. Oh, gotcha. I said best looking father. Oh, that's true. That's true. You did. You did. All right. <laughs> Qualifier. You know, I, I don't know a lot of other fathers very personally the way that I know you. So I, I won't speak one way or the gotcha. other. Okay. Yeah, I, I won't put you into that position. That's why I claimed it. <clears throat> Carmel, did you have a good Thanksgiving, being that we didn't get to see your family? We we, we had everyone at our house except the Richardsons, the Richardson we delegation. We had a good one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we had two, actually. We had one on Thursday with the extended family and then one on Saturday with just the immediate Richardsons. So now you're working that off, <clears throat> getting back into the, or at least I am. Maybe I'm projecting. I'm, I'm back to my less less carbohydrates. I had I had um, potatoes and I had bread and cookies and pie and that kind of stuff. So oh, yesterday it was back to the strict. You went all the way. <clears throat> back to the strict it's chicken. Not easy being the best looking dad in the world. It's true. <laughs> That's right. There's work. It's true. Carmel, <laughs> um, thanks for coming back. I I wanted to um, address this topic. You know, in the November elections, it appeared across the country that the pro-life movement sustained significant and perhaps unexpected political losses in many states. And you responded with a fantastic article in the American Conservative called, It's Not the Pro-Life Argument That's Losing. And the subtitle was, Ohio's new pro-death constitution is evidence 
that pro-life leaders need to get back to the basics. And in that article, you claim that winning, I quote, is a skill that has eluded the pro-life movement from the beginning. So why does it appear, especially after the Dobbs case a year ago, year, a year and a half ago, everybody thought, okay, this issue is resolved. And it seems since that time, the pro-life movement has been in retreat. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people immediately after Dobbs were saying, this is a huge win for the pro-life movement. You know, we've been working on this for decades now. And it was seen as a potential moment for momentum, for further pro-life wins. But I, I think there are two problems with that. And the first one is that it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement to call that a win. I think certainly I would not say that Dobbs and the overturn of Roe was a loss. That, that was a big deal, but it took far too long to get there. 50 and, years. Right. And, and, and all that happens as a result of that, as you know, I do not need to be the first to say, is that the issue is handed back to the states. It's not a pro-life decision. It's, I mean, ultimately, really a pro-choice decision. You're saying, okay, you can have a choice about this. We're not going to tell you that you have to be pro-abortion. That's not a big pro-life win in my mind. That's, right. that's good, but it should have happened decades earlier. And then the second part of that is I think people sort of have a misunderstanding of, of that win as, as, again, momentum that was going to project the pro-life movement toward victories that it's been seeking for, for 50 years. And that didn't happen. And a lot of people were sort of shocked and surprised. But when you look at the way that we've approached this issue, it shouldn't be surprising. We have backtracked. We have talked about 15 weeks as sort of the line in the sand, this, this magical moment when it's suddenly okay to kill a baby. And, and not because the pro-life movement actually thinks that, but because we have, you know, somebody in the back rooms ran the poll numbers and said, okay, this is going to be the winning position. Well, clearly it's not the winning position. And yeah. so I think that that projects weakness in my mind. Yeah. And you make a good point in the article about, let's zero in on that for a minute, because you make a contrast between that political way, a, 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 a traditional and yet um, faulty political means of handling the argument versus making the moral argument. Can you delve right. into that and, and the difference? And Because your, your article actually is uh, very uplifting, I think, uh, because a lot of people can walk away from these elections feeling discouraged, which is the left's aim, right? So they've succeeded in, in kind of setting the stage and making us think, oh, well, you know, here we go, lose again. And the Republican establishment will always view that as, see, we made abortion too much the issue. But your point in the article is that, no, we haven't really, <laughs> we haven't made the moral argument. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they, the left wants the right to think that abortion is a losing argument. And, and more importantly, that the American people want abortion on demand with no exceptions. And they succeed in doing that when we have these elections like Ohio's issue one, which was the subject of this piece. When you, you see that issue was defeated, I, I think 57% of Ohioans mm -hmm. um, in favor, not of some moderate, like, oh, exceptions for rape and incest, whatever. 
It was a radical proposal with almost no limits to amend the Constitution. That makes it almost untouchable. Now, we can talk about the problems with passing that via ballot proposal rather than a more Republican form of government. But regardless, that is the way that Ohioans voted. And I think that that tells the pro-life movement something really important. That tells people who care about life from conception that this is not the way that people are thinking about it when they're going to the polls. And so we have lost and we need to accept that we've lost and start back at square one and say, how do I make this moral argument? How do I explain to people that what is at stake here is not choice? Because if you're voting 57% in favor of this, you think it's about choice. You're not voting 57% in favor of murder. People are not, most people are not that um, <laughs> wicked at heart. There are certainly some, but if you're thinking that this is about choice, you're going to go in favor of the abortion argument. So I think that is, it's clear evidence that the pro-choice argument has won over our moral imagination. And so if we're thinking about it in that way and, and talking about it in that way, which is the way that we've seen the pro-life politicians talk about it. In the piece, I talk about Governor Mike DeWine, Ohio's governor, and how he sort of backtracked on his own position on life in the lead up to this bill. And in my mind, that is a clear signal of weakness and a way to, really a way to lose. He mm -hmm. was thinking, I'll moderate my position. Well, I don't know what he was thinking. It seemed like he must have been thinking, I'll moderate my position and this will win more people who might be in the middle, sort of swaying one way or the other. But the reality is that suggests you don't actually believe that life begins at conception. Right. And so maybe it doesn't. Maybe this isn't a big deal. And we can just all agree to let everybody choose their own choice. Yeah, it's the lack. Clearly, that's not the case. It's the lack of the ability to have a firm moral argument, but it's also the propagation of a purely political argument where is where the GOP has gone wrong in this with the 15-week abortion ban. And I, I just, I want to bring up, you know, it was just barely three months ago, maybe four months ago, I think on an interview on MSNBC where Trump, the self-professed leader of the Republican Party, uh, in the United States, said in an interview that he would consider signing. And, and so this is the the mantra now. Everyone wants to talk about in the GOP this 15-week ban. And Trump acknowledged on national television that he would consider signing not only a 15-week ban, but then went further to criticize Governor DeSantis for signing a six-week heartbeat bill in Florida. And, that, and that's incredible. So I, I dug up uh, a paper that the Lozier Institute put out specifically addressing this whole idea of abortions at 15 weeks. Well, did you know, and I'm sure you do, that 94% of all abortions nationwide, 94% take place before 15 weeks. So when a Republican says, I'm okay with signing into law nationally, a 15-week ban, you also must acknowledge that you are now willing to legalize 94% mm -hmm. of the abortions that take place today. That's that's what the GOP is saying. In other words, GOP leadership is asking pro-life people for the sake of winning elections, for the sake of ensuring that we, we broaden the base and get Republicans in office, we have to accept 
94% of abortions across the country. That, that to me, is insane and shows me, I'll just, I'll just say it, in the GOP, we, we have no moral argument. I mean, that, that moral argument simply doesn't exist in the GOP. And, I, and I'll, I'll shut up about this paper, but it, it just goes on to say even there was a study in Florida in 2021 that most of those abortions of the 6% that are left are uh, shown to be elective. They're, they're all, even at that stage, they're still elect because the mantra is, well, it's health care and we have to make all these exceptions. But the statistics show, let's see, 0.4% of the remaining 6%, so an infinitesimally small group of abortions happen because of a life-threatening issue. 0.3% of that 6% uh, happened because of rape and 0.06% of the remaining 6% happened because of incest. Yeah. So even all of the, these arguments that we need, all of these exceptions, because all of these people are just, you know, need reproductive, quote-unquote, health care, it's insane. And it really, I mean, I'll just say it pisses me off because right now we have a GOP that is unwilling, for, for whatever reason, I don't know what what syndrome is happening amongst the populace, but are unwilling not only to call out President Trump on that issue, but are unwilling to call out other Republican leaders on that issue who are supporting this 15-week nonsense. And I'll just say it's godless. But that's where we are in the GOP. Well, and I'll, <clears throat> I'll add one more thing and then let Carmel speak to it. Not only does it present a problem for the GOP, but Gary and I have talked about this. We have friends who are big Trump supporters who, when faced with that issue, they take Trump's position. People who were previously pro-life, who we thought were convicted of the the moral issue of pro-life, they justify their support of Trump and what he's done now. He's he's effectively gone back to his Democrat position before he was a Republican, and he's become full-on pro-choice. He's a pro-choice candidate. And which I d I'm not surprised that he would do that because it's it's kind of who he has been personally. But what I'm disappointed in is so many Christians and supporters of Trump who have who have abandoned their previous moral convictions in order to support Trump in it. It's not just the GOP. And I think this is an important point to make. I wish that it was just the squishy suits in Washington. But Susan B. Anthony List, the big pro-life mm -hmm. group, they have touted this 15-week ban as the line. And, you know, I'm, there are lots of great people who work there. Lots of great things come out of that group. But when you are, you hold the high watermark on what life is in America. Mm -hmm. And if you say it's 15 weeks, that's what the people believe. And so if, if the most pro-life, the biggest pro-life group, it's sort of like, a good point. you know, the Heritage Foundation if they took a position on life as this way, that a lot of people follow that. They say, okay, this is this is acceptable. This is the moderate position. But like you're saying, Gary, there's nothing moderate about it. You are allowing the majority of all abortions to be um, committed. And again, if you actually believe that life begins at conception, there's, there's no cutoff. There's no point at which murder is acceptable. Right. And you either believe that or you don't. And, I, you know, it's worth bringing, Carmel, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, even here in, in Tennessee, 
it was interesting to me this legislative session that we just finished with this year in 2023 was the was the first legislative session that we've had post Dobbs and Tennessee was one of those states I, I can't remember if the trigger law I think it passed in 2019 it might have been 2017 I can't recall one of those two years we had a trigger law that passed that basically stated in state code if Roe was ever overturned this would be the law and that law was a a strict ban on you know all abortions, period, in the state of Tennessee. And so when when the GOP got that done, rah, rah, rah. I mean, we patted ourselves on the back. Tennessee's the most pro-life state. Great. Well, I mean, r- right away, I mean, the first, the first challenge, the first time that the state had to deal with a non-row world, we watered down that mm-hmm. that law. And mm-hmm. the and the GOP in mass voted for it. And, and it was because, well, there was too much ambiguity and, you know, concerning the life of the mother and the doctors may face prosecution if they do this abortion under these certain circumstances. I'm like, leave it in there. Like, that's why abortions aren't happening, because doctors are scared to perform them. That's the point. And when the law first came in the committee, Tennessee right to life was all I mean they were they were with us they were all against it they were like nope we're going to stand on the trigger law we're going to we're going to make our bed we made our bed we're going to lie in it we're going to defend life and then as usual as time went on well you know I see how we can and all the lobbyists got involved and all the money got involved and all the health care got involved and Tennessee right to life and the GOP struck a deal and they they watered down the ban on abortion to protect doctors in certain circumstances where they may need to perform an abortion, which which an actual doctor will tell you past a certain point. There's never a medical need for an abortion. There might be a medical need to deliver the baby, but there is never a medical hmm. need for an abortion. And but that's even in the in the, the red state, as we call it, of Tennessee, hmm. that's where we are. That's where our moral moral argument is currently in Tennessee. Abandoned. Yes. Right. We've got to protect the doctors. Just jumping in on that, are you saying that it was the Republican groups that chose of their own initiative to water this down? There was their lobbying from the left as well. Yeah, these these were bills carried by Republicans. Yeah, there was no which was which was lobbied by the medical. This this was a call from the medical establishment that you know, look, these abortion laws place restrictions as such that may put certain physicians in a precarious situation if they have to perform an abortion. So this this was lobbying done by the medical establishment that then became uh, a compromise with Tennessee Right to Life and the GOP. And again, this bill was carried by the GOP and run by leadership, supported by Speaker Cameron Sexton. Yeah, you hear that silence? That's like it's like jaw dropping to the floor, right? It's uh, most right. people. It, it's what the Republicans always do. <clears throat> um, can I have five minutes to do something here? Sure. Because when I when I I want I want to talk about the moral argument and Carmel, I don't know if you remember when I read your article. One of the things that um, got me excited was you referencing making the moral argument, and I don't know if you remember back in the day when we used to go to 
Republican events, either when I was chairman or when Lynchpins of Liberty Matter was happening with IRS or whatever that was. And I was making speeches all over the country and some of them, the local ones, you and your siblings and your mother were there. But the common thread in all of those speeches was that we have to get out of this pragmatic approach and make the moral argument. So yesterday I did a little exercise. I went back and dusted off some of those old speeches. And I, if you'll indulge me just for five minutes, I want to quote from a speech. I want to read an excerpt that I gave in 2013 because I think it speaks to this present challenge as well as giving evidence that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. On June 5th, 2013, the day after I testified before Congress, I lost 75% of my business and a 14-year relationship with a dear client who expressed unease with my very public political views. My world had changed. But this whole affair cemented my conviction that when we speak truth without regard to its consequences for ourselves, it resonates with thousands who are waiting for someone to give voice to their concerns. The moment we finished our testimony before Congress, I received 200 emails of encouragement from all over the country and even from Poland and China. This was a call to moral courage. I opened my remarks that day with a quote from Solzhenitsyn, a man who knew moral courage like few others, a man who endured eight years in the frozen gulag simply because in a private letter to a friend that happened to be opened by Soviet authorities, it was learned that Solzhenitsyn had lampooned Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, calling him, quote, the man with the mustache. Paying the ultimate price for one's liberty tends to provide moral clarity. This is why Solzhenitsyn's remarks before the Senate in 1975 warrant our attention, for in them he made a subtle yet important distinction between extraordinary men and men with greatness. A man with greatness is one who recognizes that he is but a man and that his better qualities are transcendent, coming from beyond himself. Man with greatness. There is in the phrase an implicit humility, an acknowledgement by man of a dependency on something outside of him. And as Christians, obviously, we know that's God. To say that a man is extraordinary is to focus on the man, suggesting that the permanent problems of human nature, what we know as sin, don't apply to him or that he can rise above them like Superman. This leads inevitably to pride and failure, for no man can bear the burdens of God. But a man with greatness deriving his virtue from God will bear much fruit. Modern culture celebrates extraordinary men, but history remembers men with greatness. Some referred to, and this was during the time of Obama, our current, our then-current president, as an extraordinary man. Winston Churchill was a man with greatness. William Pitt was an extraordinary man, the youngest prime minister in the history of Great Britain, celebrated for his economic policies. But William Wilberforce was a man with greatness. By all accounts, Wilberforce would have succeeded Pitt as prime minister of Great Britain had he not taken up the unpopular cause of abolishing the slave trade. Wilberforce surrendered his personal ambition out of obedience to God. And it's important to emphasize that Wilberforce's relationship with God did not enhance his political career, but his obedience to God made an everlasting impact in the whole volume of human history. So to which of these do we aspire, the extraordinary pit or Wilberforce, the man with greatness? This kind of self-sacrifice confounds the Republican establishment, who seems slow to grasp that politics, 
all of politics is a moral enterprise. They misapprehend that people do not subscribe to ideas because of their usefulness. They subscribe because they believe the ideas to be true. Every person, every culture is defined by how it answers the important questions. And if we do not act on what we claim to believe, everything else is empty. Author Henry Van Dyke put it this way, In every life there is a ruling passion, the pulse of the machine. Unless you touch that, you are groping around outside of reality. Refusing to answer or ignoring the principal question is also an answer. This is why the GOP establishment loses elections. They nibble around the margins of all the vital issues, nervously hoping that nobody will touch the pulse of the machine. They argue tax policy purely as a monetary issue, ignoring the inherent injustice of redistribution of wealth. They are, as Van Dyke wrote, groping around outside of reality. They say they believe what we believe, but they can't win unless they surrender their values, abandoning the truth in order to win elections. Do they really believe that after they win, they can reassert their values? And what kind of values yield to danger or convenience? The left may have the wrong ideas, but they have always demonstrated an understanding of the uses of moral persuasion. This is why the undecided will always break toward the true-believing Democrat who passionately believes in his positions over an empty shell of a Republican who has no belief greater than securing a vote for himself. And why is it so fashionable among the GOP establishment to celebrate the nice guy who cooperates with his enemies? This overemphasizes superficiality while ignoring the virtues of truth and honor, which are necessary to maintain a free and civil society. And then I ended with this. Do we really believe that the future belongs to men and women whose principal characteristics are their niceness? Does not politely allowing our liberties to be trampled have the same effect as one who takes them away with aggression? And 10 years later, that's exactly what we're discussing right now. Isn't it amazing the relevance of those words? Very relevant. It it does not change. But I I was proud of you for making the moral argument because it, it made me go back and say, wow, maybe the apple didn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> well, I certainly learned a lot from those visiting speeches. Hey, Carmel, I wanted to bring up something you, you put in this article as well. And I've got, a, I've got a copy of the actual amendment that passed in Ohio. And a, a portion of it states, every individual has a right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions. And I'll stop there. there there's, there's more. But every individual has a right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions. That is now a constitutionally enshrined right in Ohio. And so you you stated, and I, I'm, and I would infer that's that's where you're getting that from, but I wanted you to speak to, you say, the amendment to the Ohio Constitution applies this subversion of parental authority. So now, we, and then, which, which is, I thought was a great grab because we're talking about an amendment on abortion, but you bring out parental authority to all reproductive medical treatments very likely could be construed to include gender-affirming therapy. I wanted to bring that up. I think that's a really important point to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a legislator. But when I read that language, and especially in the context of the water that we're swimming in these days, it, it makes me concerned because that is absolutely 
vague enough that somebody somewhere is going to try to say, well, every every person has a right to reproductive decisions. If this person decides to castrate himself, that's a reproductive decision. He has a right to it. So that I think to me that opens a big door for a lot of problems that are not just related to abortion. And, you know, transgenderism is the issue of the day, but there will be other horrors that are invented in future years. And as we say, this is part of their state constitution, which means it's going to be very hard to get rid of. So as long as that is there, I mean, I I can think of all kinds of things that could go in the reproductive basket, um, with that kind of vague language, it could be very dangerous. Well, that's an astute observation. I think you're absolutely right. It's actually the same thing we saw with the 2015 Obergefell decision, which which was supposed to only be about gay marriage. Well, yeah. what what the agenda did was took, I think it was the first phrase of the court order talking about uh, the, the requirement to uphold the dignity of the individual. And they used they used out of an entire court ruling on gay marriage, they took that phrase, the dignity of the individual, to then infer transgender rights across the country from a 2015 decision on marriage. That's and that's that's how they build. Right. So I think I think you're spot on. And I agree. And I I think it's going to happen within months. I I, I predict in months in Ohio (laughs) you're going to see this kind of outcome running through the legislature based on this new constitutional amendment. Well, and let's let's make sure that we are crystal clear that that language that was chosen, it was Kennedy that wrote that opinion, right? The Obergefell? Yes, yeah. That language was chosen specifically by one of his law clerks who would have been influenced by what the left's plan was. So it wasn't like they used this phrase, and then the left happened upon it and said, ooh, we can seize upon that. The left oh, knew in advance, found. this is the phrase we yeah. want you to use when you're making this decision so that then we can expand upon that. They are very strategic, something else that the GOP is is blind to. They're like, oh, well, this isn't going to happen. The GOP takes everything at face value, don't they? Right, right. And that's why we lose. It's, you know, you say, well, 15 weeks is not what we would like for an abortion ban, but let's just do it. You know, it's a step in the right direction, better 15 weeks than 25 weeks. And and we'll get there. We'll get to six weeks. We'll get to abortion being outlawed. But clearly that's not working. Um, The needle is only moving to the left toward partial birth abortions. You know, all all of these arguments of moderation and just finding a middle point between the two camps arbitrarily, just because it happens to be in the middle, is it's not changing the game at all. It, it well, I guess it is changing it towards the right losing. So hang hang on to this because this is gonna be a Carmel Richardson in the set it first in the American conservative. Just remember I that. hope I'm wrong. I, I, I really do. hope I'm wrong. I do too. So Carmel, what do you think, and I don't know if it was in this article, I I just perused it quickly again, or if it was in another one, because you've written thematically about these moral issues. What do you think the response should be? Because in my mind, when you say go back to square one, square one is really a cultural issue. It's a family issue. It's teaching our children and making sure that they're living according to their convictions not that we abandon the political side, but we, I think that 50 years of working from Roe v. Wade until we got to Dobbs, so much was spent in political matters. And I 
I mean, we know a lot of people who were who who were doing it for the right reasons, but because the infrastructure of that was all based on political uh, achievement and getting the Supreme Court to overturn a decision, I think we abandoned the fact that look, the Supreme Court is only a reflection, just like legislature is only a reflection of what the culture believes, right? We create laws that reflect what people believe. And I know it's repeated over and over again, but politics is downstream from culture. So isn't it true that if we are to get back to square one, that it starts with the heart, it starts with the family, it starts with really having those convictions? Because then when those people are in positions of authority, whether it be a court or legislative body, they're not going to just say, oh, 15 weeks is okay. They're going to say, hell no. Murder is murder, right? That's our starting point. There is no compromise with evil. That's right. No, I think that's exactly right. Because if you go about it as, well, you know, we need to pragmatically win, we need to get a right guy in office, and then we'll try to do it. You, You know, we're seeing the results of that. The 15 weeks doesn't pass. But in order to change the hearts and the minds, that is, that's a, you know, a long, slow march through the institutions. We need to work that, we need to work our own way through the institutions and co-opt them for ourselves. Um, so I think the, the two big ones that I would hit on is education, the school system, um, public education, and then also, this sounds kind of funny to say, but taking back the church, like the Christian uh, church should be- That's not funny to say at all. Gary and I have been talking about that for months. Right. The church should be the front of this issue. And I think there are examples. You can look at what Josh Abatoy and um, Nate Fisher are doing over at the New Founding and um, the American Reformer. They're sort of trying to move the needle from the Christian perspective on a lot of political issues. And then also what Doug Wilson is doing out in Moscow, Idaho. Right. Um, <clears throat> movements like that are really exciting because you see Christians saying, what we're doing is not going to go become a political hack in Washington, but we also cannot retreat from the culture. We're going to take it. We're going to make it Christian. We're going to raise Christians and they will create a Christian world. You know, we, we have to be faithful in the little things and those will produce fruit in the long term. But it's a long march. And you point to that strategically because this is another thing that we have, we meaning those on the political right, and Christians are a subset of that, um, at least politically, have abandoned strategy and long-term strategy. We want everything now, and we've got it into our minds that um, there isn't enough time to do these things. But, you know, we don't have yesterday, right? And we don't have tomorrow. All that God gives us is today. And the best thing we can be doing today doesn't change just because we think, and this is the foolishness of it, if we think it's going to fall off the cliff tomorrow, then we tend to abandon the responsibility of, of doing what is good and right and, and defending what is true because we, I think we start to play God and say, well, it's, it's so close to the edge and it's just going to all fall apart, so why invest in teaching one day at a time what is right? We don't know what the future holds, right? I think this is, um, I like to talk about this as living like a post-millennial. Amen. But basically, if you think that the world is going to end, if you think that, you know, the worst is yet to come, you're not going to be motivated to do what is right. But if your mindset, whatever you actually think about the end times, and I won't jump into the theology because I'm not equipped to do that. But if your mindset is things are going to get better, Christ is reigning over this earth and we are going to see 
good things come and the fruit will be reaped and we will have a harvest of of Christian children. And yeah, if your mindset is that things are moving towards good and towards virtue, then you're going to be so much more motivated to actually put your hands in the dirt and start planting. Yep. So kind of along the same lines with this idea of that we're talking about really that politics is downstream from culture and we're talking about making this re-educating our youth with this moral argument. I just want to, I don't want to get in the weeds on this issue, but bring up the fact that this was passed in Ohio by a ballot initiative, right? Mm-hmm. This this was, so, th- I mean, literally, we are seeing the outcome of a cultural argument. And, you know, ballot initiatives are interesting to me because I've spent, you know, I care about our Constitution. I, I see so many things going on, and I, I've, I've, in my own mind, and, and I feel like I'm coming to a conclusion, but in my own mind, I've, I've deliberated the value of ballot initiatives the value because florida has ballot initiatives in fact i I, i've done some research on certain states where citizens can petition themselves to amend their constitution when their republican form of government fails to do so and i mean you know the um the family policy center in florida led an initiative and they they amended the florida constitution to define marriages between one man and one woman in Florida, that was done by a ballot initiative. So, I mean, so, you know, because I, I was thinking in Tennessee, like they're never this GOP basically ruled by Vanderbilt is never going to protect medical freedom in our Constitution. So I've thought about I've contemplated the value of, of mm-hmm. having some sort of ballot initiative process. But when I look at something like this, right, I I. I have to fully acknowledge how dangerous that can be because these ballot initiatives. Right, direct democracy. Yeah. great. And and when I look back at Madison in Federalist 10 when he talks about factions in Federalist 51 when he talks about the tyranny of the majority, that this was the danger. In fact, when you look at the idea of the tyranny of tyranny of the majority, the, the issue there is that the majority is not always right. Amen. <laughs> so there, right. there, frequently not. There is a Republican well, form of government that exists sometimes to protect what is true and righteous, despite uh, the wanings and and cryings of a, a current and and temporal majority. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a reason why Madison was saying that. And that's because he read the ancient political philosophers and for Plato and Plato and Aristotle were saying the same things. They were saying the same thing. They said that democracy was the worst form of government. Yeah. Even where it is destructive of virtue. Yeah. That's exactly Mm. the, I'm glad you just made that point because for as bad as authoritarianism is, all of the great political philosophers said direct democracy is still a worse tyranny. Yeah. So I think I think that's an important point in the in this discussion as we're talking about culture affecting politics. This is exactly what we've seen happen mm-hmm. in Ohio, and and I, I found it interesting too because I, I was I was doing some digging before the podcast today. As I printed off your article and I was kind of looking into everything else. You know, this election it wasn't just issue one. Ohio also had issue two. So in this same election. They not only legalized abortion, by by another ballot initiative, they legalized recreational marijuana. Mm-hmm. So they went all the way in in one in one election. And I, I also found it interesting. Ohio is is unique. I don't know how many states do this. Um, some states only allow ballot initiatives 
in the Constitution, but Ohio allows ballot initiatives to in the Constitution and to create law because the mm-hmm. so the marijuana piece was actually a uh, a piece of legislation. It's law. It's not a, so. It, anyway, um, <clears throat> just super super interesting conversation. I think that that deserves more in another podcast to really talk about. You know, states like California, even even a state like look a incredible republican bastion like florida is a state that is is able to uh, their constitution able to be amended by a ballot initiative in in the changing of the tide of culture that's a dangerous proposition yeah. for a state like florida yeah the protections that we see in florida now could under, all go away good, yeah under good republican leadership and and the, a culture which is favorable to life and favorable to righteousness yeah can change very quickly and you know florida becomes goes from becoming the favorite place for all christians and conservatives to being a a danger on our doorstep yeah so so you know praise god for that at least i think i think i think i've landed right now at least for me and in my soul that ballot initiatives are are not a good thing and i'm i'm really thankful that you know our our constitution here in Tennessee, it's a really difficult process to amend. It's it's got to pass. There's a measure that has to pass two subsequent general assemblies before it can even get to a ballot. So, like you're a minimum, you know, three four year period before you can even get something on a gubernatorial ballot to amend. So, I I I, I view that as a good thing. I think I, I think a constitution should be very difficult to amend and should be. Uh, there should be vigorous and very public and extended debate around those issues. Would, would that those same uh, delays and protections were in place to prevent bad interpretations of the Constitution? If only. <laughs> if Carmel, only. any uh, final words, parting words of wisdom for us today? Oh, goodness. Any hope for the future? We, we are full, we are full of hope. hope for the yeah. future. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic, you know? The more that Christians have children and that people who like to kill children don't have children, that's, right. that's good for us. Yeah. I, I, I say that Great all the time. Point. They're they're killing their own. And um, and so I'm very proud, of course, to hear my daughter, the mother of my first grandchild, say that. Expecting <laughs> lots more, of course. Expecting more on the way. <laughs> Carmel, thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you and the family at Christmas time. And... Uh, Hopefully sometime next year we'll have you back to talk about another one of your great articles. That sounds great. Yeah, Thank good, you for having me. Good job. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it.